Well, that's a powerful video this morning. Debbie, uh, our new administrator, wrote that very, uh, very poem, dance, whatever you want to call it. But it actually captures where we're headed this morning. Uh, if you haven't been with us in a while, hey, this is a great time to join us this morning. Uh, we are starting a new series entitled Mission. Uh, a few months ago, the leaders of this church got together on a Saturday for, for quite a few hours. And we began to pray and begin to talk about what is it that God wants for us as his people. Uh, and, and we determined this, that through a lot of prayer and through a lot of discussion, we determined that, that God wants us, our mission at this church is to become a community of hope. And as we begin to ask the questions, well, how do we become a community of hope? What does it look like for us to be a people of hope? We started to ask these questions, what are the values that are going to shape who we are? And we begin to look at scripture and we see that in scripture, God tells the farmers to leave the edges of their fields for the foreigners, the widows, the poor and the orphans. He says, leave your fields for them. And so we begin to ask, what does it look like for us to be the edges of those fields? The question was, how do we get there, though? How do we not only become a community of hope, but how do we offer hope to the community around us? That was the question we've been asking. And so we came up with these four core values or these four principles that we believe begin to shape our identity at Joliet First Church. And the first one is seek. The first one is seek. The second is invest. The third is restore, and the last one is send. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about these very values, and we're going to be talking about the importance of our mission. And I'm excited today about today's message uh, because we're talking about seek, which is like one of my favorite things to talk about. And so we believe at Joliet First, to become a community of hope, we must seek God with everything that we have, and not just seek God, but He also calls us in Scripture to seek His kingdom. Now, we're going to unpack these two very thoughts this morning. What does it mean to seek God? And we're not so much going to talk about how do we do those things, but why we do those things. Why do we seek God with everything we have? And why is it important that we seek the kingdom of God, also known as the kingdom of heaven? So, if you would pray for me this morning, as Pastor Mike said, I had surgery on on my knee this week, Uh, I maybe overdid it a little bit in the foyer on Friday and Saturday, and now I'm reaping the repercussions of that, so I hope it's okay. I'm going to try to sit down every once in a while today, but probably not going to happen. You know I just don't like to sit. I don't think well when I sit, but would you pray for me this morning? Lord, we open our minds and our hearts to you this day. We have come here gathered to worship you and to glorify you. Lord, in this moment of worship, in this act of worship, as we listen, may our listening glorify you this day. May we be receptive to your word. May we be open to how you are speaking to us. And may you teach us this day what it means to seek. Amen. Amen. Well, if you were like me, my guess is that if you get something in your mind... You, you are going to do whatever it is you need to do to do what you want to do, right? How many of you are out there like that? If you get something in your mind, you are going to do whatever you can do to make sure that it gets done. A few of you out there, all right? Thanks for being honest. we got a few of you out there. I, I'm really embarrassed to share this story with you this morning, but it's just a moment of honesty with you as we have these moments of confession, pastoral confession in front of people. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about one of my most embarrassing moments in life. It may not seem that embarrassing, but I think it is. I... Back in 2000, uh, 2007, I was hit by a drunk driver. I had a nice Jeep that I bought when I got back from deployment. 
And uh, so I ended up buying this Nissan Xterra. I thought they looked cool. They're really cheap, but I thought they looked cool, right? And so I bought this, this vehicle, and I had it for about seven or eight years. And, of course, as you know, uh, vehicles over time depreciate, and they require mechanical work. Well, I took the Xterra to the shop, and the guy says, uh, you, you, you need a new catalytic converter. And I'm like, oh, well, whatever, dude. I don't know what that is, but it sounds cool. Uh, and then he says, you Unfortunately, your car just doesn't have one, but it has four of them. I said, oh, well, can you tell me how, how much those run? He said, they're about $1,000 a piece. I'm like, that's like more than the car is worth. I mean, most of your cars have one catalytic converter. This one had four. So I decided that I would sell it, and I sold it, and very honest with the guy. He loved it. I hope he's happy with it. Uh, but you know this, right? It's time to get a new car. And I was like really, really, really excited. And, and when I go after something, I pursue it and I seek it with everything that I possibly have. And you know what it's like to buy a new car, right? You're on Craigslist 24-7. You're looking at every car. You're comparing. You're pricing. You're calling. You're visiting. You're driving. I mean, you're doing all these things when you're, when you're shopping for a car. And I can remember Janelle said to me at one point, she said, seriously, would you just buy a car so you can actually do something else? Like, it consumes you, right? When you, when you sit at night and you're staying up till one or two in the morning looking for cars, like, it just consumes you. And, and I remember I came across this Toyota, and I don't care if you like Ford, Chevy, whatever. Hey, it's a car. Who cares? But I love the Toyota Tundra Crew Max 4x4 SR5. I came across this Crew Max. Full cab. Uh, it was like military brown. It was really cool. It was an SR5. The, the back window rolled all the way down. And even the back seats. Now, I've never seen this in a truck. But the back seats would scoot forward, and you could lean back. That's how big this cab was. And when my kids were in trouble, I couldn't even reach back to grab them when I was driving. They were so far back. It was an awesome truck. But then I looked at the sticker price. And I remember looking at it, and it was like, now this was a 2007. Uh, it only had 75,000 miles, one owner. It was in great shape. And they wanted $24,000. Now, I know that, that you get it too, right? When we see the sticker price, immediately in our minds, we say, no, that's, I can talk them down. And not only am I going to talk them down, but I'm going to talk them down to where I need to be, about $15,000, right? No, absolutely not. I went in and to looked at this Toyota Tundra, and of course, I did the wrong thing. I drove it. You never drive a car before you buy it, right? I don't know. That's what I've been told. But I drove it, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And so I made up my mind that I was going to buy this truck. And I knew darn well that I didn't have the money for it. Have y'all ever been in this moment? So I'm sitting here, and, and I felt something inside of me saying, do not buy this truck. It's not a good use of your money. It's not wise. This is not a good use of God's money. And I just remember signing that piece of paper, walking away, saying, this truck is awesome. <laughs> and then the story didn't end well. A few months later, uh, I felt really convicted about this truck. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having nice things. There's something wrong when you can't afford those nice things. And I felt as though God was saying to me, you need to get rid of this truck. You know, I don't think God often speaks about possessions, but I felt like in this moment it was like, this is not honoring me in any way. So I decided to sell the truck on Craigslist. I sold it within like a matter of days. But it just so happens the guy that was buying my truck needed to sell his car. Some of you have told, heard me tell this story, but he sends me the picture of the car that he needs to sell. So imagine with me a military brown, massive crew cab truck to a picture of a powdered blue Honda 
specific. He sends me the picture, and I tell Janelle, no way. No way am I buying this truck, or am I buying this car. But it, it was almost as God was saying, this is not going to end well for you. And so I remember we ended up trading vehicles. Uh, he paid me. I bought that stupid little Civic. And I looked like the biggest dork because I had a massive beard, and I looked like a lumberjack driving a Honda Civic. It was the weirdest thing ever. It didn't end well. I tell you to tell you this, that, that all of us, I think, in life are designed to, to desire to see, we are designed to desire to seek and to pursue something and someone. But as people, and I believe this about us, that as people, we have a predisposition to pursue and fulfill those things that often go unfulfilled. Think about that with me for a minute, that what often goes unfulfilled is really our own insatiable selfish desires. Those are the things that often go unfulfilled. And so I want you to hear this this morning, that that when seeking God, when pursuing God becomes secondary, self-depravity becomes primal in our lives. I totally believe that this day. And so to kind of prove my point, I, I need to take you through a story. I'm doing some different preaching through the summer. We're doing more topical than we are exegetical. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But this is difficult for me. I'm learning how to do this. But, but if we begin to look throughout the history of Israel... We, we know that God created Israel in God's image, and they were to be, for the rest of the world, an image of love. They were called to be the people where redemption and salvation came about. But the constant tension that we find between Israel and, and the world around them is their insatiable, insatiable, selfish desire to be like the rest of the world. And so around them, they begin to see that that every other culture, every other kingdom has a king. But we are the only nation that doesn't have a king. Which, by the way, makes them so amazing. Because their king is God. But they begin to look around and say, we want a king, we want a king. And this was never God's design for his people. It was always God's design. That God would rule their hearts because they allowed him in their hearts. And I truly believe that whatever rules your heart will obviously rule your life. And so they decided... We want a king. And we know the story that, that Israel gets their king, and over, uh, over time we have good kings, we have bad kings. But, but I want to I give you some history in Second Kings, but we're going to be looking at Chronicles. We're all over the place. But, but there's this one king named Rehoboam, and he was a really, 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 really bad king. In fact, it talks about the fact that, that he led Israel down this path of such evil that, that has never been witnessed before in the nation of Israel. In fact, it made God so mad that he was righteously angry and jealous. And so in 2 Kings, we get a little story about what he does. It says, it says that he, he, he set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. In other words... He begins to put images of what he thinks God looks like all over the kingdom. There are even male shrine prostitutes in the land. And people begin to engage in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And then if you turn to Second Chronicles 12, I'll just read it for you because it's quick. But we get a snapshot of what Rehoboam's life was like in just a paragraph. 
It says this, King Rehoboam established himself firmly in Jerusalem and continued as king. He was 41 years old when he became king and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. And the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Namah and she was an Ammonite. Now listen to this part. This is the best part. It says, he did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. Notice that it says he did evil because. Not because he thought it would be cool. Not because he loved having a bunch of male shrine prostitutes running around. Not because he wanted to like mess up his legacy. But he did it because the cause of his actions were the cause of his heart. His heart was not set on seeking the Lord. And this story proves my point that that whatever you begin to seek becomes the center of who you are. That's a good line. Write that down. That whatever you begin to seek becomes the center of who you are. And I truly believe that when, when seeking God and seeking his purpose for our life becomes secondary, that our self-depravity, our, our, our want for sin becomes primal in life. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about this idea of what does it, how do, why do we seek God? And I, and I love this, but I need to start out with the image of what that seeking looks like. For those of you new to the faith, or maybe you've been out of church for a while, I truly believe that God is on a relentless pursuit for you. And if we, need, if we can figure out what it looks like to pursue God, then we have to look at the God that pursues each of us. He's the perfect image of what that looks like. And so if you're new to the faith, let me, let, me, let me help you understand for a minute. We believe that God, from the very beginning, even before creation, that he was love. That the relationship that Jesus talks about between the Father and the Son, the relationship about God the Father and God the Son is God the eternal lover. And last week we learned in John 17 that, that Jesus says, Father, you have loved me even before the beginning of creation. Which tells me that even before any cosmic matter or universal existence, that at the center, I don't care what you believe about creation, the Nazarene Church is a big ten on that, it doesn't really matter. The point is this, is that God created, but he created at the beginning out of love. And I truly believe that it's out of this abundance that God creates creatures and his people. And what what sets our story apart from all the other creation stories, what makes our story so compelling is that we are an offshoot of God's love, that we are images of this love. You see, Greek mythology, this is the problem for Rome, that they believe that, that their existence, that they were an offshoot of violence and vengeance, that the warring gods somehow in their fight created, unfortunately, people. And I truly believe that that view of their God shaped who they were. That's why we have Roman conquest. This is why violence and vengeance is the center of their empire. But what I love about our story and about the God that we serve is that love is at the center of it. Now, I, I need you to think theologically with me for just one minute. But, but if God creates out of love, if his very nature is love, Would it be love if God forced you to love him? No. 
So I truly believe that it's out of this love that God gives us a freedom to choose Him, to choose His love, or to choose self. And we know the story, right? We know the story that we all did, that we decided that we would choose our selfish desires, our sin over God. And it's not God who let evil into the world. We are the ones who chose to bring it here. But notice this. I believe that it's, it's out of God's love that he gives us that freedom. And so we know the story, and all of a sudden, pretty much all of Genesis is about a bunch of broken people. Chapters 1 to 11 is about a bunch of broken people. And when you get to Genesis, by chapter 11, you're like, what is going on? But we know that's not the end of the story. We're talking about God pursuing his people. I I believe that, that Jesus, the revealed image of God, is the image of love to us. And God is on a relentless pursuit to redeem his world, to redeem his people, to make new his people. And so he sent his son Jesus, who died on the cross, who took on death and defeated death, the very death that we allowed to enter the world. And we begin to see the perfect image of what love looks like through Jesus. He embodies it. And so if you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I, I don't believe that that God exists. If you're here today saying, I feel like God has abandoned me, or maybe you feel like God has taken someone or something from you that was precious and dear and it was so hurtful, and you're saying, why would God do that to me? Let me just say this. It's easy to take that stance. It's easy to take that point of view. But what's more redemptive is, is seeing that God is on a mission To make you new because he loves you. That God is on a mission to make you new because he loves you. And when we experience this new life, we move from death to life. We move from darkness into light. We move from this this brokenness into this restorative uh, uh, design life that God has for us. We move from from mourning into into joy. I mean, this is what life is about when, when... when we begin to experience his love. And so I believe that if God wants to be made known in the world to his people, if he is on a pursuit for us, what does it look like for us to reciprocate? What does it look like for us to pursue passionately with the same veracity at which God pursues us? What does that look like? And so this morning, that's That's where we're going to go. Now that I've talked about the God who pursues, what does it look like for us to pursue God? It's interesting. We're going to be looking at Matthew 6 here in a minute. Uh, But the Greek word is seek. I'm going to teach you a Greek word this morning. Uh, We'll start out with the the prefix ze. Everybody say ze. One more time now. Everybody say ze. All right. Last part, teo. All right. Now put it together. Ze, teo. All right, let's, come on, together now. Here we go. Zeteo. All right. Zeteo. All right. One more time. One, two, three. Zeteo. Mm, you guys are scholars. What's interesting about this word seek is it has multiple nuances and meanings. And I love the way that the first definition is this, is that we're seeking something that has been lost. Now, I'll be honest with you that 
It was in our own freedom and choice that we allowed that chasm, that divide, to, to, to enter into the world. And God has said, I'm, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to send my son Jesus. But there's still a second half to it. And so seeking is about regaining the relationship that we once saw. It's about the good that was created in the Garden of Eden, this relationship. And so seeking is about regaining the relationship that we once had with God. And, and it's not just seeking uh, this relationship, but what is a relationship? What makes a relationship? Is a relationship what you know about somebody? I know a lot about my wife. I know a lot about Janelle. But that doesn't mean we have a good relationship. You see, I truly believe that that a good relationship is about solidarity. It's about unity. It's about coming together. It's about oneness. It's about being one together. And so it's interesting that as we begin to look in Genesis, we see that that God creates that God creates man and woman. And he says, may the two become one flesh. And I love this thought that, that right after he says, may the two become one flesh, he says, they were naked and they felt no shame. Now, I, I believe that those two lines are really connected together. Because think about, naked for us is about shame. It's about embarrassment. Nobody wants to stand in front of somebody else naked. It's, it's a weird, awkward feeling. But I think naked, nakedness in the garden represents authenticity. I think it represents a lack of judgment. I think it represents somebody giving their whole selves to somebody else saying, this is who I am. And that other person saying, I love you for who you are. And I truly believe this. I truly believe this. That what clothed Adam and Eve in the garden was the love of God. And so we get an image as the two become one flesh. Yes, it's sexually. Yes, it's intimacy. Yes, it's authenticity. It's about being real and open and vulnerable. That's how we become one with each other. That's what the relationship looks like. But then we, we skip over to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 where where he tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is what it looks like to seek God. But, but before he tells us that, he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Now the one that God uses to describe himself is the one that we see when God commands Adam and Eve to become one flesh. Well, you're talking about an intimacy that, that is uncomfortable, that God knows us in the way that Adam and Eve knew each other. But it's not just, as I said, about knowing. Hear me when I say this. There are a lot of you who know about God. You know a lot about God's word, but your knowledge is not a reflection of your connection with God. So when, when we begin to pair the two of one with Adam and Eve and one when God refers to himself and when Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, so too are you to be in the Father. And I, you know, it's like this massive, uh, mystical, weird, awkward, authentic relationship of unity. 
So I think what, what he's calling us to when we begin to seek God is that we begin to find God in these moments where we are vulnerable, where we are honest about our frustrations, but where we feel no shame. Because the cross has put shame to shame this morning. Somebody say amen. The cross has put shame to shame this morning. And because of that, you are clothed in the love of Christ. The same love that clothed Adam and Eve. And so when we meet with our maker, it's the love that clothes us, not our shame. Boy, I'm excited. If I could jump, I would, but I can't. (laughs) I guess what I'm trying to say to you this morning is that oneness is this mystical, intimate relationship with God And we are to seek it and pursue it with everything that we have. So, seeking is about regaining the relationship. And regaining the relationship is not about knowledge. It's about oneness. But then there's the second half. Right? I believe, I truly believe that that when we begin to live the resurrected life, we have a responsibility. There's a responsibility with resurrection and new life. I truly believe that when we are loved by God, He makes us response-able to do the very things that He calls us to do. And so this morning, I, I need to talk with you about what is the kingdom of God In in Matthew 6, he tells us, he begins to say, do not worry about all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And often, here's, we've got to go deep a little bit this morning. The kingdom of God, for much of us, we've got to talk about what we talk about when we talk about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, is not a place that we go to when we die. The kingdom of heaven is not a a platonic, platonic, dualistic, disembodied view of heaven. That is not what God had in mind when he talked about this. The kingdom of heaven was not something that we are waiting for. This is not something that hasn't arrived yet. But see, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is this. It is God's redemptive future brought to the present in and through Jesus. That all along, we couldn't do what needed to be done for us. And here God sends his redemptive, restorative image of love to the world in the present to meet us where we are. And so we believe that the kingdom of God, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, we are talking about God's sovereign, saving rule on earth as in heaven. What I love about Matthew is... Matthew wants to respect the name of God, so he doesn't say it. Instead, he says heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And heaven and God are interchangeable. They're the same. So whenever we talk about God, we are talking about heaven. And we know that God is where? Everywhere. God is everywhere. And so I I have to take you to, to quit thinking about the kingdom of heaven as this place that we go to when we die. Otherwise, you will miss out on the present kingdom of God that Jesus talks about when he comes. In Mark, he says, the kingdom, uh, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is here or near. And repent doesn't mean be sorry for your pithy little sins. Repent means that we begin to turn from our habits 
from the governments, from the policies, from the culture, and from the attitudes that have shaped our lives. And we are now turning into this new life that God offers us. And we begin to see that through Jesus. Listen, listen to me this morning. The kingdom of God moments are witnessed in the life of Jesus. When he says to a prostitute who has been caught, in a, or he's said to a woman who's been caught in adultery, you are forgiven. Is, is anybody here willing to condemn her? If you haven't sinned, go ahead, condemn her. And everybody walks away. That's a kingdom of God moment. It's when blind people who, who are meant to be beggars on the side of the road because culture says you're no longer valued are restored. It's, it's when a lady comes to the temple and she gives her only coin and she gives more than all of the religious people given altogether. It's a, the kingdom of God moments are when, when those who are on the margins and those who are on the poor, when those who are, are mourning and, 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 and who are meek and who are peaceful, these are the people who experience eternal life. Not the people who are on top, who have all the money and who have all the power. Jesus is reversing this, this whole way of life upside down. This is what we talk about when we talk about the kingdom of God. And I believe that you can see those moments in our lives here. I think about single moms that come on Tuesday, and they, they have a time where they gather, and they receive healing, and they receive restoration. I think kingdom moments are when we, when we uh, allow a mom and her son who are in a broken relationship to, to stay in our house where they can experience the goodness of what church is like and what God is like. I think they're kingdom moments when, when, when somebody we've been praying for finds themselves at the altar on their own and God works in their life and they commit their life to Him. That is a kingdom moment. I think kingdom moments are when we, when we, when we paint and we create beautiful pictures. I think kingdom moments are when we restore foyers. We give them new life. I think kingdom moments are, are when we're sitting at a dinner table together across from somebody else. These are kingdom, these are missional moments. And it's in these kingdom moments that you live like Christ because you have become one with Christ. So the, the other nuance, or the other definition that we get with this word zeteo or seek is it's not about what we deserve, but it's about the holy demand of God who requires much from whom much has been given. This is what seek means. This is another definition of seek. That seeking heaven is not about waiting till we die and whoa, we all go up in the cloud and no, 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 no. Hear what, hear what he's saying. Seek is about a demand that God gives us to produce fruit. And and we have challenged our board members in this. I have said to them quite frankly, uh, frankly, whatever you want to say, uh, if you're not producing fruit, you're not a leader. Now, I know that's a harsh statement, but, but it's a reality. And there are many days where I feel like I shouldn't be a leader. I, I feel like I shouldn't be leading a church. Maybe I'm not producing fruit. But the point is, is that, it, that, that, that this new life that God gives us is about responsibility. It's about seeking. is about sowing. It's about reaping a harvest. It's about, it's about getting out there and getting in people's lives where God is already at work which is the other meaning that I love so much. Actually, in the Hebrew, uh, shahar, I love this. Shahar, he says, uh, to be on the lookout for. I love this. That as we seek God, and as we experience these kingdom moments, we are always to be on the lookout for those moments. 
And so I've got to take you to Acts 8 real quick. Acts 8. And this is the first sermon I preached to you guys. I'm not preaching the whole thing again. It was probably terrible. But, but, but Acts 8, I love it. We find Philip. It says, Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out on his way, and, and he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah. The spirit told Philip, run to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And he responded, how can I? Unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and a lamb before its shear is silent. So he did not open his mouth. And in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, who is this prophet you're talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And the best part about it is is that in the middle of desert, there happened to be a pool where, where, where Philip decides to baptize this Ethiopian eunuch. And here's what we know about Philip. It tells us earlier in Acts that Philip was spirit-filled. That he was chosen as one of the seven to take care of the widows who were, who were getting uh, left out in the, in the daily distribution. But I love this idea of being spirit-filled because I believe that Philip was in such cohesiveness and solidarity and unity with God. He was in oneness with God. And he knew that, that, that in this relationship, he always had to be on the lookout for. And so here's what I want you to know this morning. That, that the reason why we seek God, the reason why we seek the kingdom of God is this. We seek him so we can see those who are seeking him. We seek him so we can see those who are seeking him. That is the whole purpose. That as you go uh, you go throughout life, your head is on a swivel looking for these moments. And as the Spirit, as you are one with God, as He prompts you, you're then called to go and enter into the life and share the good news of new life and restoration. This is what it means to seek God. Regain the relationship so that we are one with Him. That we are producing fruit and that we are always on the lookout so we can, as we seek him, we can see those who are seeking him. So this morning, I believe we're about to do a kingdom moment. I've been asking you for the last three or four weeks to, not to go and talk to, not to jump into the life of, but I've been asking you to pray for one person. That God would reveal to you one person in your life who you needed to mentor over this next year. Who you needed to build a relationship with. And two weeks ago, I asked you to write that name down. And so today, before we leave, I think this is a kingdom moment as we begin to identify those people 
part of this renovation is about the people that will be here. Remember, Jesus prays for those people that will be Christians. Not that they might or may be, but that they will be. And so, I want you to write your will-be's on the floor today before we tile it up. Bill's going to come in, he's going to tile. Man, I wish I were... Bill, if I could kneel and join you during the tile, I would. But I can only imagine what that's going to look like as you begin to lay tile over the names of those people that we are praying for and that we said we believe God is working in the life of. Right? That's going to be a powerful moment for you. That'll be a kingdom moment for you. So today when we walk out, you'll find Sharpies. I hope they're back there. Katie was supposed to help me out. Uh, You'll find Sharpies on the table. And we're going to give those to you. And all we're asking you to do in this kingdom moment is to begin to identify and write down the very name that you've been praying about and you wrote down in your folder two weeks ago. I believe. I believe that God is going to turn this church into a people of hope. And we're going to learn what it means to offer hope to the world around us. We are going to become the edges of the field that God calls to leave for those who are marginalized and poor, who are widowed and the orphans. And we are already doing that, my friends. There are so many stories in this church where lives have been changed and where you have, have been open to these kingdom moments. And I believe that God is going to continue to do that. Let's pray. Lord, it is your grace and your mercy that sustains us this day. Lord, we recognize that at the heart of who you are is love. And that you are on a pursuit for us. So this morning, we, I pray for those who have been today, who maybe feel like God has forgotten them. Or, or maybe God has abandoned them. Or they feel like God is up there and we're down here. And I pray for them today that, that you begin to reveal yourself. That you are a God who, who, who loves us so much. That you imaged yourself through your son, Jesus. And he was the perfect image of what love looks like. And he has come to make us new. Lord, I pray maybe there's somebody here today who has yet to, to decide to be part of that new life. We pray for them that they, they simply say, I believe, and that we commit to that. Lord, I pray for our mature folks who have, who have been living in you for most of their life. Lord, may may we realize that as long as we have breath, we still have a mission. And that you are calling us to be a people who who have our head on a swivel, who recognize those kingdom moments. And not only recognize them, but we know when to run up and we begin to have conversation with people and we jump in those moments where you're calling us to. I pray that we begin to recognize that the kingdom of God is all around us. We thank you for the way that you're working, the stories that are, that are happening in this church. And we, all, we just continue to give you the glory in everything that you do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand and join me as we close in prayer together. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. For the honor of your name. Amen. Go in peace. Go write your names down.